Hi and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Clark's Legal. My name is Amanda Glover and I'm an employment solicitor in the firm's business services group. So at the time of recording this podcast, it's the 27th of November and it was only yesterday revealed by the government which tiers different parts of the country will find themselves in when this national lockdown comes to an end on the 2nd of December. For many businesses, this really is the final nail in the coffin, especially for many in the hospitality industry who are finding themselves in tier three. The period leading up to Christmas is of course a time when many businesses bring in a significant part of their annual revenue, but this year, it's likely this won't be the case. It's instead likely that many business owners will have to take a long, hard look at the viability of the business and potentially look to cut costs. Inevitably, this often leads to redundancies being made. We heard only recently that this October saw two and a half times the amount of redundancies seen in October last year. And the amount of people being made redundant this October was nowhere near the numbers we saw back in June and July 2020. So that really puts things into perspective. So it's against this dismal backdrop that I wanted to talk to you today about redundancies. And my hope is really that if redundancies are inevitable for a business, if I can at least help you make the process run as smoothly as possible and ensure you don't run into any legal difficulties, then I can help make the experience more bearable for both sides of the equation. So I've put together 10 top tips for a redundancy, which I'll take you through today. And in this podcast, I'll be focusing on redundancies involving less than 20 members of staff. I'm hoping to do a separate podcast about collective redundancies, so please do keep an eye out for that. So let's dive in. Tip number one is to ensure that you have a genuine redundancy situation. So put plainly, you have a genuine redundancy situation where the requirements for employees to do a certain type of work has either ceased or diminished. So really, we're looking at the closure of a business as a whole, or the closure of a particular workplace where the employee was employed, or a reduction in the size of the workforce. So my point is, do not use redundancy to hide the real reason for dismissing a person. If you end up at an employment tribunal, the tribunal is likely to see through this and notice any ulterior motives. So where you're actually dealing with an issue of capability, for example, or performance, then stick to your capability or performance procedures instead. And this will help you avoid an unfair dismissal claim at the end. The topic of procedures leads me quite smoothly on to top tip number two, which is to make sure to closely follow any policies or procedures you have in place on redundancy. And also just ensure that those that are at risk of redundancy have access to these policies too. If they can see that you are following procedures and policies as written, they're more likely to have faith in you and less likely to feel confused or question the fairness of the process. And if you don't have any relevant policies or procedures in place, then ACAS actually have useful advisory guidance in relation to redundancies, which you can follow instead. So tip number three, maintain clear and open communication throughout the process. This is really key to a smooth redundancy process. Morale will be low, employees will be worried and will inevitably have lots of questions. So the best approach to garner trust is to be very upfront and clear about why the business needs to make redundancies. Also, the earlier you start this open dialogue with employees, the better. Leaving them in the dark will likely spark rumours and just lead to animosity. So instead, communicating openly from the get-go can give employees a chance to make suggestions. And they may be suggestions which you as an employer may not yet have thought about. 
And remember, communicate clearly to everyone. Bear in mind that you may need to be including absent employees in the process, such as those who are on long-term sick leave or maternity leave. And the same letters that you're delivering to all present employees should also be delivered to relevant absent employees too. Clear communication and involvement when it comes to these employees may involve making reasonable adjust adjustments for them, so bear that in mind, particularly when you get to the point of consultation. Tip number four, identify the appropriate pool. So start off by asking the question, what work is ceasing or diminishing and who carries out that work? Ensure you have a clear proposed restructure or redundancy plan, setting out what the future of the business needs to look like. This will help you have a clear view of which groups of employees the redundancies need to be made from and therefore where the jobs are at risk. You can have pools of one, um, but this will need to be justified. So you must be able to show that the work carried out by that one person is unique and is ceasing or diminishing. Tip number five, make sure to use fair and objective selection criteria. This is really important. The criteria used need to be capable of measurement and must be non-discriminatory. So potentially fair criteria include things like performance, flexibility and attendance and sickness records. So be much more careful with criteria such as length of service, which can be age discriminatory, um, although it can potentially be used where employees score equally. Also, make sure that reasonable adjustments are made when scoring disabled employees. This will ensure that they're on a level playing field with non-disabled employees. In practice, that can mean things like discounting absences which relate to their disability um, when you're doing the scoring exercise. Tip number six, consult correctly. So really the crux of getting redundancies right is having a proper and meaningful consultation process before any final decisions are made. This process is fundamental to a fair dismissal for redundancy and a flawed process will likely lead to a number of unfair dismissal claims against you. It's also important to never use wording which suggests your mind has already been made up, especially during the consultation period as your mind shouldn't be made up until the process has completely concluded. Meaningful consultation should include discussions around alternatives to redundancy, such as job shares or shorter working weeks, and generally employees' concerns should be listened to and taken into account. And remember, your employees may think of things or solutions which you have not yet considered. Tip number seven, consider suitable alternative employment. Employees are required to make reasonable efforts to search for a suitable alternative employment within the organisation for those employees who are at risk of redundancy. Redundancy dismissals are likely to be unfair where you've not done this. And remember, opportunities at lower levels shouldn't be automatically discounted on the assumption an at-risk employee would not accept it. Where there are vacancies, ensure you provide at-risk employees with sufficient details of these and one very important point to note is that potentially redundant employees on maternity or adoption leave must be offered any suitable alternative vacancies ahead of anyone else. Otherwise, their dismissal will be automatically unfair. Where you've got a number of at-risk employees interested in the same vacancy, then they should all be invited to apply for the role and there should be the usual competitive interview process to decide who should ultimately be given the role. 
Tip number eight is to provide a reasonable amount of time off during working hours to look for new work. So those that have been employed by you for two years or more and who have been given notice of dismissal by reason of redundancy have a statutory right to a reasonable amount of time off during working hours to look for a new job or to make training arrangements for future employment. And some of this time may have to be paid too. Tip number nine, correctly calculate the statutory and contractual payments due. Only employees with two years service are entitled to a statutory redundancy payment, but you may want to offer those with less service and ex-gratia payment where possible. The statutory payments can easily be calculated online using gov.uk if you need help with those. Um, some contracts of employment also offer contractual redundancy payments over and above the statutory amount, so make sure you just double-check employees' contracts before you make any calculations. And remember, employees will also be entitled to statutory or contractual notice or payment in lieu of notice. And where you want to make payments in lieu of notice, you must just make sure that the employee's contract allows for pylon payments. And for those of you listening, knowing that your employees do not have pylon clauses in their contracts, please do get in touch with us and we can help you with this. Um, redundancy payments are tax-free up to £30,000, but notice payments are subject to tax and national insurance deductions. For those employers really keen to err on the side of caution, you could mitigate future tribunal claims risks by considering offering a settlement agreement to employees. Um, you would most likely need to offer some additional payment to secure this. Um, and again, we have lots of experience at Clark's Legal, both drafting and advising on settlement agreements, so don't hesitate to contact us if we can assist here. And that brings us finally to tip number 10, which is be kind. There seems to have been the motto to try to live by this year and I shall reiterate it as my final redundancy tip. Remember, a redundancy period will be an extremely stressful period for your employees, even for those not selected for redundancy. So do try to reassure employees and know that although you have little power over factors such as the economic climate, advances in technology or a global pandemic, there are other things you can do to help soften the blow for your employees. CV development, interview skills training or simply having compassion and showing that you are available to talk can really help employees feel supported through this difficult period. This is also an important part of keeping your reputation intact. The support that you give to your staff will reflect positively on you as an employer, both for those staff who are staying on and those who have to leave. Employees staying on are likely to feel loyal to an employer who they see has dealt with a difficult situation transparently, with dignity and with compassion. And even for those employees who leave, whether you like it or not, they are ultimately ambassadors of your organisation. So aside from a heightened chance of them bringing tribunal claims, ex-employees who felt they were treated unfairly or without empathy are likely to have a strong opinion about the organisation which will be communicated to others, including potential future recruits or customers. So again, be kind. It costs nothing but can save you a lot. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If there's anything I've mentioned in the podcast which you feel you want to take legal advice on, please do not hesitate to contact me or any of my colleagues via the email address contact at clarkslegal.com or via our Clark's Legal LLP LinkedIn page. Alternatively, Clark's Legal runs a HR support website called Employment Buddy, 
which is available to sign up to and provides a number of useful HR guides and template documents to help you navigate a number of different employment scenarios. So please contact us if you want to know more about this service too. Many thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I hope you have a good week and I really look forward to speaking to you again soon.